Well, we're going to continue on with the next statement in the Apostles' Creed today. And we're going to be in Luke's Gospel again. If you've got your Bibles, uh, start turning to Luke chapter 22 is the first place uh, where we're going to be. And we'll read some parts of that in just a moment. Uh, Today we're going to be uh, focusing in on the cross. Uh, We've already had it right in front of us as we've shared together in the Lord's Supper. Some of the things we've been reading from the Bible and we've been reflecting on, uh, none of that we could be doing without the cross. As much as Nike might be known by a swoosh or McDonald's by golden arches or Apple by an apple... The logo of Christianity is a cross. If you paid a brand consultant or a graphic designer oodles of money to come up with a logo for Christianity, the cross would not really be what they would want to go for. From a graphic design point of view, from a brand consultancy point of view, the cross, it's ugly. The cross is shameful. A cross is a symbol of violence. And if you take the cross to represent a moment in history where Jesus was crucified, it is a scene that captures the ultimate hate of humanity. It is a moment where we see the bottomless pit of loss and defeat. The cross is an unexpected moment in history. And all but just a brief moment. Less than one day. So why might it be the logo, the brand of Christianity? Well, Because the cross is the perfect plan of God that opens the door to the most beautiful grace and peace. Amidst that intense and focused hatred of humanity, God shows his limitless love to bring gain and victory. And while... It was just one bad day in history. The cross of Good Friday breaks out into eternity. The cross is the brand identity of Christianity. And a Christianity that is not cross-focused, not cross-centred, even cross-obsessed, is not Christianity. Our faith, our belief, our life is obsessed with the cross. Not because of its hatred, not because of its violence, not because of what Jesus does for us at the cross. With just five verbs, doing words, five verbs... I said that mostly for my own benefit, just so I keep remembering. With just five verbs, the Apostles' Creed captures for us what Jesus does for us. Suffered, 
crucified, died, buried, descended. Now this next statement in the Apostles' Creed is, is a big jump from our previous statement, what we looked at last week. Here we're jumping from one end of the gospel narrative to the other. In one week, in one line, in one statement, we're jumping from Christmas to Easter. And so this morning we're going to have, take a scenic route through Luke chapters 22 and 23. This is Luke's historical gospel account of the cross. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to take a bit of a scenic route and we're going to stop at some of the rest areas and some of the breathtaking lookouts that show us what the cross means for us. If you're using the outline in our news sheet today or you're a person who likes to take notes, this is a kind of outline that is going to operate in four quadrants or spheres or just fuzz of overlap really. These four words are going to be important to us today. Condemnation, substitution, justification, inspiration. Makes me want to sing that big words that end in shun song again. We didn't look at all these in our big words that end in shun sermon series last year or the year before, whenever it was. Uh, but today we want to, as, as we stop in these rest areas in the, in the scenic route through the cross, we want to see condemnation when it comes up. Uh, we're going to see some breathtaking lookouts where we see substitution and justification and that our breaths might be taken away with inspiration. Okay, you've got Luke chapter 22 open in front of you. Uh, some of it's going to come up on the screen behind me if you want to follow along uh, with the words up there. We're not going to read every verse, uh, but if you're following along starting in chapter 22, uh, verse 1, I should remind us as well, remember right back in Luke chapter 1, Verses 1 to 4, Luke is writing this down so that we might know with certainty uh, everything that has happened around about Jesus. He wants to be careful, he wants to be accurate, he wants to build up a foundation uh, for knowledge and belief about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. As much as he did that in the first four sentences, he's still doing that when we get to chapters 22, 23 and chapter 24, which we'll come to next week. So in Luke chapter 22, we see here, Luke wants us to notice the time, the time when Jesus' suffering, crucifixion and death happen. Follow along with me please in verse 1, chapter 22 verse 1 and see if you can find out, work out the timing for when Jesus' death, crucifixion, crucifixion death happen. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. Down in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Verse 8. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Verse 11. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 13. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
Anyone manage to guess or work out that really cryptic commentary about when Jesus' suffering and crucifixion and death happened? Passover? Passover. Passover was an annual celebration and remembrance from God's Old Testament people, remembering and celebrating God's rescue of them from Egypt. Remember baby Moses growing up in Egypt and going away? having that encounter with God, God saying that you are going to lead my people out from under slavery in Egypt, the plagues before Pharaoh, and then that final plague where there's going to be the death of all the firstborn except for those who belong to God's people uh, who would participate in this Passover and that plague of death would pass over them and they would not be affected by it. And then God said, continue to celebrate this meal annually that you might remember what I have done for you and continue to do for you. Do this annually to celebrate that. Well, at the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were still doing that. The Passover lamb was still sacrificed It was taken and it was killed as a substitute for the people who belong to God. Now as Jesus heads towards the cross, he will suffer and die as a substitute. Who for? Let's have a look at verse 19. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples who were eating this meal with him on the night before he died. But in this moment, and in Luke writing it down, he's speaking it to all who will belong to him. His body given, his blood poured out is for you. It is for us. It is a substitute. Jesus will suffer and die on the cross in our place, in the place of those who belong to him. And now as we move along into verses 24 to 27, Jesus also sees that his death is to be an inspiration, an example for others to follow. Not in taking themselves to a cross and, and being nailed, but look at what he says in verse 24. Chapter 22, verse 24, a dispute rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Here are the disciples, the night before Jesus died, they didn't know he was going to die, but here here they are having the first Lord's Supper meal. Could you imagine us sharing in that meal together this morning and then all of a sudden a fight breaking out as to who was the greatest? I don't know. The disciples managed to do it and I, I think that is as I know my own heart, why I keep being drawn to read Philippians 2 at the end of the Lord's Supper. So easily we can walk away from it 
and forget about Jesus giving his life in service for us, though he was great, he humbled himself to become a a man, a servant, to be obedient even unto death and, and we can get out into the car park later on today and start to think that we're suddenly really important. Just like the disciples. A dispute broke out among them, verse 24, and Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You see, Jesus, as he's going to the cross, he is a servant. He gives an example, an inspiration for us of serving like him. John, in his gospel, tells us about Jesus getting down and washing his disciples' feet. Some people might take away these acts of Jesus and this service and love. They find it so warm, as we should. And reduce the cross, though, to just an example of love, to just inspiration. Now, we want to see the inspiration that is here. We want to see what Jesus does for us as an example for us to follow in the way that we serve and love one another. But there's more to it. We're going to move into verses 39 to 65 where we come to the garden and here we see the darkness of condemnation. Let's go to verse 42, verse 42. Here's Jesus praying. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is here in the garden in severe anguish. Jesus knows what is ahead for him. Though he has probably never felt nails through his hands and his feet before, though he has probably never felt a crown of thorns on his head before and perhaps never beaten and spat on and whipped, though he has never felt any of that before, Jesus knows what is coming. Not just the physical brutality of what is coming but the darkness of condemnation that will come on him in bearing the judgment of the world. He appeals, God the Son appeals to God the Father to take away this anguish because the anguish that he has upon himself is to take the cup and drink it. Not a cup of a symbolic Lord's Supper, not a cup of wine that he might share with his disciples, not even a cup of water that might refresh his thirst. But this is the cup of God's wrath and judgment. The the Old Testament prophets speak about this cup. A cup that will take up all of God's holy, righteous anger that might be 
poured out on all that is evil about the world, every ugliness that comes out of our hearts, that that might be poured out in full right down to the very last drop. And here in the garden, Jesus knows that his death on the cross that is coming is the drinking of that cup. God the Son is taking on himself that condemnation. And so as Jesus is arrested and condemned by the Jewish religious leaders, mocked by soldiers, um, sentenced by a Roman ruler and condemned by the crowds, verse 53, Jesus says, darkness reigns. In the darkness of that night, the disciple Peter denies knowing Jesus. The guards mock Jesus and beat Jesus, verses 63 to 65. But as we come to the trial of Jesus before Pilate, who is the Roman representative of Caesar, the emperor, and the trial before Herod, who's the political head of Jewish law at that time, what stands out about Jesus' trial is his innocence. Now, this repeated testimony to Jesus' innocence is important for understanding substitution, which brings justification. Hold on for this sentence. One who is just stands in the place of the unjust before a just judge so that the just judge declares the unjust just. This is substitution that brings justification. Now, every time I say the word just, it's necessary, essential, important. So let me put my Dr. Zeus voice on again and uh, go again. One who is just stands in the place of the unjust before a just judge so that the just judge declares the unjust just. Special shout out if your name's Justin or Justine today. Luke wants us to know this about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of Man who judges on behalf of God and that he is just that he is innocent of all the charges that are brought against him. Uh, Have a look with me, please, in chapter 23, verse 4. Chapter 23, verse 4. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Down in verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Over in verse 22, for the third time, He, Pilate, spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. 
Now, as Luke carefully and in an orderly way records what had happened, he wants to see, wants us to see and know this repeated refrain that Jesus is innocent. And that Pilate here speaks on behalf of everyone. Pilate kind of speaks here as the, the, the ruler, the one who has had the means to assess Jesus carefully and to say from the top of the tree, from the highest perspective and human authority in that place at that time, Jesus is innocent. But at that moment at which Jesus' innocence is declared, one who is guilty gets what the innocent deserves. One who is unjust gets what the just one deserves. He gets freedom. See verse 25, still in chapter 23, verse 25. This is that little account about Barabbas. A murderer, one who'd been put in, in, in prison for an insurrection, a kind of political coup where people were caught up in the crossfire and killed. A well-known criminal. Verse 25, Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is substitution. As much as Pilate represents humanity's declaration of Jesus' innocence, Barabbas represents humanity's possibility of substitution. This theme of substitution continues as Jesus is taken out to be crucified. Uh, Jesus is, is taunted by the people round about him that he might save himself. See verse 35? The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Verse 39, even one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This is substitution. It wasn't that Jesus couldn't save himself. It wasn't that Jesus couldn't change the course of history in his own benefit. But he stands in the place that he takes for others. He bears condemnation. Chapter 23, verse 23, he's crucified with criminals. Verse 44, though it is noon, darkness comes over the whole land. Darkness, through the Old Testament prophets, is a sign of judgment and a sign of condemnation. This is a moment of Jesus bearing God's condemnation. This is the moment where Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. 
Verse 45, the curtain in the temple is torn, is a sign of condemnation. Condemnation of the temple and its religion that has been corrupted by humanity. And at the same time, this is justification. Will you turn with me please over to Hebrews? Uh, Stick your finger in Luke because we'll be coming back. Uh, But turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. The Gospel writers put down for us the, the facts of what happened with bits of comment along the way. But we really need to read the Gospel accounts with books like Romans and Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians and hear Hebrews for understanding what is going on at the cross. Now hear what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 about this curtain and how condemnation is our substitution so that we might know justification. Verse 19, therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. As he mentions here, Jesus' blood... And Jesus' body, a reference to his death, his condemnation. That as a great high priest, he stands in our place in substitution so that in justification, we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that we have confidence to stand before God, that we have confidence to approach God, that we have confidence to walk through the the curtain, symbolic curtain that was there in the symbolic Old Testament temple that was a separation between God and people because of sin. Because of Jesus' condemnation, we have a substitution that enables a justification before God. Now as we head back towards Luke, Luke doesn't record for us but the other gospel writers do, Jesus saying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This comes from the Old Testament, it comes from Psalm 22, it was the cry of the psalmist who felt cut off from God. Here it is the cry of God the Son bearing the righteous anger of God the Father. 
Not merely feeling alone. Not just wishing that God the Father might be with him. This is the cry, not of God's absence, but a cry of God's intense presence in judgment. As God the Son bears the righteous anger of God the Father. And if we happen to forget that, again, Jesus was innocent, see verse 47? The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Jesus' condemnation is in our place, substitution, so that we have justification. Now, very quickly, we're going to go through burial, and we're going to come back to burial next week as our starting point for doing resurrection. But Luke tells us that Jesus' body was buried. There's some details about that. It was an ordinary kind of burial. It was a witnessed historical fact. Jesus really was dead. This is not a women's weekly kind of story or clickbait that says, oh, person come back from the dead uh, because they weren't really dead. Uh, Jesus was dead. He is buried. Now, the Apostles' Creed tells us that Jesus descended to the dead. Well, some of us might have uh, uh, grown up in a church tradition or in a time in history um, when the creed said he descended to hell. I'm going to do some more thinking about this because I've changed my mind this week. I had always thought that the Apostles' Creed said Jesus descended to hell and more modern translations have changed it to dead. Going right back to the 5th, 6th, 7th century, the Apostles' Creed in Latin said that Jesus descended to the dead. And it was not till medieval times that it changed to Jesus descended to hell. I didn't know that. (laughs) That's turned some of my thinking around. Not hugely so, but I want to do a bit more thinking about that uh, this week. And so we're going to use that as our starting point then for resurrection next week. Now, there's a teaser to come back for a sermon next week, but I'm not going to just leave you hanging. As Jesus descended to the dead, as Jesus descended to hell, not a geographical place, this is what I think is going on. Jesus faced everything that death is. Everything that death is, physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, Jesus faced it. Everything that the curse of sin brings to our physical bodies, Jesus faced it. Everything about which death says this is the end, the place of complete lifelessness and defeat, Jesus faced it. Except Jesus comes back from that place of ultimate death to ultimate new life. And that's where we'll be next week. So let's wrap this up. This is what Jesus did for us. He suffered. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He descended. Why? 
It's condemnation. Jesus took on himself God's condemnation. As you and I see the full horror of that in the pages of Luke's Gospel and the other Gospels, it should show us the seriousness of sin and God's intense and right judgment of it. We must never be desensitized to the ugliness of sin and its condemnation. As you and I see the logo of Christianity, as you see and as you remember the cross, be conscious of this. I'm a sinner and need to repent. The cross is substitution. Jesus stands in my place before the holy God. And so every time I see the logo of Christianity, every time I see the cross, I should be pleading for forgiveness before God. The cross is justification, the place where sin is dealt with justly by Jesus before a just judge so that every time I see the logo of Christianity, knowing justification, I can rest in Jesus. I can be free from anxiety, free from guilt, free from the shame of sin. And the cross is inspiration. Jesus' endurance of the cross is an example of love, an example of service and of unjust suffering. So as I see the logo of Christianity, it might spur me on in faith and godliness like that of Jesus. Now as we come to pray together, I'm going to read for us these words from 1 Peter. Another reflection on the cross by somebody who was there, the one who was in the darkness, denying Jesus, condemning him unjustly. This is what Peter says, and may these be our words as well. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls.